We've often heard that music brings us together. It can unite us with its beauty and stir within us specific emotions. One song or piece of music can instantly call back memories that can lift us up or make us cry. Such is its power. That being said, on the opposite side of the spectrum, it also has, on rare occasions, the ability to divide us and incite violence. The Altamont Free Concert on December 6, 1969 was a perfect example of this darker side to music. On the night in question, in which the Rolling Stones were playing the Altamont Speedway in Northern California, a young woman named Meredith Hunter was stabbed to death by a member of the notorious Hells Angels biker gang as he approached the stage with a gun. A similar incident took place almost exactly ten years later and involved another British rock band, The Who. On that occasion, which occurred on December 3, 1979, eleven people were trampled to death when concert goers stormed the entrance doors at Riverfront Coliseum, now the Heritage Bank Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. It should be known, however, that such incidents are not confined solely to rock and roll. In fact, one of the biggest riots in modern music took place in Paris in 1913 during the premiere of a ballet. What's the background behind this production? Who was its composer? And what led to the riot on its opening night? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. For people of my generation, those who grew up in the 1990s, the name Rite of Spring will undoubtedly sound familiar. That's because it was one of the compositions featured in the 1940 experimental Disney animated classic Fantasia, which was released on home video in 1991. The piece was used in a spectacular prehistoric sequence that begins with the creation of the universe and ends with the extinction of the dinosaurs, a rather fitting sequence given the composition's original setting. While this is the way most of us know Rite of Spring, it had a rather complex creative process, and bringing it into being was no easy feat or small task. It all began over a century ago. The formative years of the 20th century were marked by experimentation in art and music. New forms led to exciting new movements and styles, the like of which had never been seen or heard before. Painters like Pablo Picasso and Henri Matisse dabbled in abstract forms, while composers such as Claude Debussy and Gustav Holst wrote bold and daring new compositions that turned to nature, the psyche, and exotic cultures for inspiration. And the undisputed center of this creative explosion was none other than Paris. Indeed, the French capital was the place to be an artist of any sort, and it attracted people from every corner of the globe as a result. So it was that, in 1909, a bright-eyed young composer from a little town west of St. Petersburg, Russia, was brought to Paris to commission a series of ballets for the fledgling Ballet Russe, literally Russian ballet in French. By the time 27-year-old Igor Stravinsky arrived in the French capital, he was still a virtually unknown composer. In February that same year, two of his compositions had been performed for the first time in a concert in St. Petersburg. It was this concert that would prove a turning point in his career, however, for seated in the audience was none other than Sergei Diaghilev, a Russian impresario and owner of the Ballet Russe. Impressed by what he'd heard, Diaghilev approached Stravinsky following the performance and invited him to compose music for the ballet's 1910 season, which was to feature new productions based upon Russian myth and folklore. Stravinsky agreed and composed the ballet that would become one of his most iconic pieces of music, The Firebird. Upon its premiere on June 25, 1910, it was met with both financial success and critical acclaim, and in turn launched Stravinsky to stardom. Mark him well, Diaghilev said of his fellow countrymen, he is a man on the eve of celebrity. Writing the wave of fame brought on by the Firebird, Stravinsky and Diaghilev collaborated again the following year with Petrushka, a compelling drama that tells the story of three puppets come to life and who become caught in a love triangle. It, too, proved to be a smash hit. 
By 1912, Stravinsky had become a household name in Paris, and his career showed no signs of slowing or stopping. His time with the Ballet Russe had also exposed him to some truly influential people, namely Nicolas Roerich, a set designer for the company who was also a mystic and leading authority on Russian folklore. As the two came to befriend one another, Stravinsky began toying with the idea of writing a ballet that revolved around Russia's ancient past. Roerich greatly encouraged the idea, and the two began to brainstorm, traveling to and from Russia on multiple occasions to conduct research. They referred to several sources of Russian history and literature, namely the Primary Chronicle, an epic 12th-century historical account of what was then referred to as the land of Kievan Rus. The result of Stravinsky and Roerich's research efforts was a roughly 40-minute ballet titled Le Sacre de Printemps, The Rite of Spring. Subtitled Pictures of Pagan Russia and divided into two parts, it would depict a primitive ritual to celebrate the arrival of spring with the choosing of a sacrificial victim to appease the gods. For a good year and a half, Stravinsky worked tirelessly on Rite of Spring. Winter 1911-1912 saw the completion of the first two movements of Part 1. By March of 1912, Part 1 was complete, and much of Part 2 had been drafted. Shortly thereafter, he presented what he had to Diaghilev. Needless to say, the impresario was shocked by what he heard and decided to push its premiere to the following year in 1913. What was so shocking about it, you might ask? Well, for starters, the music didn't follow any traditional structures of classical music. Heavy on percussive repetition, dissonance, and contrasting chords, the music served largely to evoke the atmosphere of rural, ancient Russia, with its wildlife and primitive religious practices. In other words, like many works of art at the time, it was wildly experimental, and there was no telling how audiences would react. But why did Stravinsky embrace the avant-garde after two successful ballets that were more or less done in the traditional classical vein? Despite his newfound fame and popularity, he was still a relatively new composer, and mounting the quote-unquote wrong production could make or break him. It was a bold move, to say the least. Why risk it? The answer might surprise you. He was largely motivated by spite. Regardless of his stardom in Paris, his seemingly adoring French public had, for the most part, a preconceived notion of Russians in their minds. With people like Diaghilev and Stravinsky at the forefront of bringing Russian art and culture to Western European audiences, Parisian society was impressed that representatives of such a backward, primitive, savage culture could create such stunning and sophisticated works. Incensed but also amused by this notion, Stravinsky decided that he would feed the public's imagination by mounting a ballet that embodied and epitomized said primitive culture in the early days of its development. Having worked on the score for Rite of Spring throughout the remainder of 1912, by March 8, 1913, it was complete. Upon its completion, he presented it to his friend, fellow composer Maurice Ravel, who lauded it and proclaimed that its opening night would be an important affair. So it was that Rite of Spring entered rehearsals in late March. But the production was plagued with trouble from the start, not in any technical aspect, but in the music itself. For starters, the score called for a whopping 100-piece orchestra, an unheard-of practice even then. Diaghilev wasn't certain if they could all even fit in the newly-built Théâtre des Champs-Élysées. In addition, the musicians were confused by many of Stravinsky's creative choices. However, when they questioned him about them, he simply told them to play them as they were written. Perhaps not surprisingly, this was met with laughter. The musicians deemed him insane and passed the work off as pure nonsense. It took some convincing, however, but ultimately he was able to get them to do it. Through it all, he continued to make revisions, namely the sacrificial dance at the ballet's conclusion. As late as the end of April of 1913, about a month prior to Rite of Spring's premiere, the score was at last complete. Fast forward to the night in question. May 29, 1913 was a comfortable evening in Paris. 
Anybody who was anybody in the music world was in attendance, including renowned composers Claude Debussy and Camille Sonsaens, among others. The so-called Parisian artistic elite, dressed in their best, arrived and began to buzz excitedly about catching what they thought to be an authentic glimpse into primitive and exotic Russian life. No sooner had they taken their seats did the lights dim, and a single high note ring out from the orchestra. Sonsaens himself famously turned to the person next to him, inquiring as to what the instrument was. Upon learning that it was a bassoon, the composer scoffed. If that's a bassoon, then I'm a baboon, he said. The bassoon, a large woodwind instrument usually confined to the lower registers of the woodwind section, seldom, if ever, received a solo, and never had it been the opening instrument in a ballet or concert before. Stravinsky's choice in doing so was to evoke a primitive flute, like those used in ancient Russian music. It's an evocative choice, to be sure, and one that fit perfectly in establishing the setting. Soon other instruments joined the fray. The structure of the overture itself was already causing murmuring and conversation within the audience. Less music and more tonality and mimicry to imitate birdsong, the buzzing of insects, and even the croaking of a frog. It was unlike anything anyone in attendance had ever heard before. Pizzicato on violins introduced a pulse to the music as the curtain rose. The audience gasped as dancers dressed in traditional ancient Russian garb danced to a loud, percussive beat played by cellos, basses, and timpani drums. The haphazard, almost spastic movements of the choreography sent those attendance into a frenzy. The so-called artistic elite began to boo and jeer while the bohemians in the seats below them cheered, largely out of spite, for they loved anything the bourgeoisie hated. Soon the noise of the crowd combined with the orchestra were so loud that the choreographer, Vaslav Nijinsky, began to stamp out the rhythm with his foot from backstage so the dancers could hear the beats. At one point, Stravinsky himself emerged from his box and shouted, Go to hell! to all those who were jeering the work. The composers in attendance for the most part disliked it. One major exception was Claude Debussy, who did his best to shout his praise over the boos and hisses from the artistic elite. But, as you can expect, it didn't stop there. Though the performance continued, the audience began picking up whatever they could find and hurled it onto the stage. Everything available was tossed in our direction, the orchestra's conductor Pierre Monteux later recalled, but we continued to play on. At one point, a handful of people stormed the stage as well. It wasn't long before the theater manager notified the police, who quickly swarmed the place to quell the restless mob. In total, some 40 of the worst offenders were ejected, according to a report filed that evening. Most surprising of all, however, is that despite the melee, the performance played on, all the way through to the end. By part two, much of the din had died down, and the audience, both the so-named elite and the bohemians in the seats below, watched the sacrificial dance at the ballet's conclusion in relative silence. Upon its ending, there were reportedly several curtain calls for the dancers, the conductor, and orchestra, as well as for Stravinsky and Nijinsky themselves. Luckily, everyone in attendance that night made it out decidedly unscathed, save for minor injuries and flared-up tempers. So what exactly triggered this unrest during the premiere? Aside from the music and content itself, historians believe it was driven, in large part, by the disparate factions in the audience, that is, the so-called Parisian artistic elite and the Bohemians. Clashes between the two groups were not uncommon, especially in galleries and concerts, but were primarily confined to verbal exchanges. But the premiere of Rite of Spring was the spark that lit the fuse, causing the two to erupt into violence against one another. The elite, as you could probably deduce, were largely staunch traditionalists as far as classical music and traditional ballet were concerned, and therefore despised anything newer of the avant-garde. The Bohemians, on the other hand, lauded such artistic experimentation, the whether it was out of spite for the bourgeoisie, or simply because they genuinely enjoyed such content largely boiled down to individual tastes. 
Naturally, the headlines the following morning plastered the news of the Rite of Spring riot in papers all over Paris. In addition, critics largely panned the production, the harshest of which is attributed to Henri Quittard of Le Figaro. It is a work of laborious and puerile barbarity, he wrote. We are sorry to see an artist such as Monsieur Stravinsky involve himself in this disconcerting adventure. However, shockingly, not all the reviews were negative. Gustave Lenore of the theatrical magazine Comedia lauded the ballet, calling it superb, and that the disturbances while deplorable, were merely a rowdy debate between two ill-mannered factions. Despite the chaos of the premiere, Rite of Spring would run for five more performances in Paris, the last of which ran on June 13, 1913. While further violence thankfully didn't break out, the production continued to polarize audiences. Famed Italian composer Giacomo Puccini attended the second evening's performance, branding it the work of a madman. From there it went to London for an additional four performances at the Theatre Royal at Drury Lane. Stravinsky couldn't attend this run, however, as he was stricken with typhoid fever at the time. London audiences, believe it or not, received the ballet a bit more favorably, though the music was still criticized for its lack of melody and harmony in favor of rhythm. If Monsieur Stravinsky had wished to be really primitive, a critic from the Times wrote, he would have been wise to score his ballet for nothing but drums. British ballet historian Cyril Beaumont gave his two cents, or tuppence, I guess, in their currency, following a performance, stating that the choreography was slow and uncouth, and that such dancing was in complete opposition to the traditions of classical ballet. Perhaps not surprisingly, in light of such reactions, the ballet would not be staged again for some 70 years. It wasn't until the 1980s that it was recreated with much of the original choreography and scenery that it once again took the spotlight, this time with considerably more acclaim and appreciation. But let's not end the story of Rite of Spring on a sour note. Get it? I'm here all week, folks. While the ballet itself was shunned for some seven decades, it would finally receive its due in Stravinsky's own lifetime, when it was performed as a strictly concert piece, that is, with just an orchestra and no staging, on February 18, 1914, in St. Petersburg. Here it was not only met with thunderous applause, but with great praise. When Stravinsky himself attended a concert of it at the Casino de Paris in Paris on April 5th that same year, he was triumphantly carried on the shoulders of the crowd following the performance. From there, it went on to London, the United States, and even Australia, with each country ironically praising it for its experimentation and structure. What's perhaps most ironic of all, however, for a ballet about a supposed primitive culture, is that those highfalutin Parisians who attended its premiere in 1913 behaved with as much ferocity and savagery as the perceived pagan Russian subjects. Talk about turning the tables. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this comprehensive look at one of the most important, albeit controversial, pieces of music of the 20th century. Have you seen Rite of Spring performed in concert or as a ballet? Let me know in the comments of my latest Instagram post at history underscore loves underscore company. If you love history and enjoy learning and would like to support me in this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash history loves company and click the support button. From there, you'll be redirected to three different support plans that fit any budget. Liking and sharing help too, so please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for another informative episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then. Music